This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome to the Nursing Australia podcast. It is episode 18 and October 2021 marks both Mental Health and Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So be sure to mark those in your diary and make them front and centre on your agendas. Now, this episode is very special. We're discovering long COVID as Australia hits the unfortunate 100,000 positive COVID cases since the virus hit our shores early last year. The simple purpose is long COVID is the persistence of symptoms uh, of COVID beyond the acute infection. We'll be grabbing some insider stories in relation to APNA's student placement program within primary care and specifically general practice. APNA decided to create the Student Nurse Placement Program to meet the need of the workforce shortage that we're experiencing. And lastly, durries are on the agenda as we fly the health promotion flag for smoking cessation. Smoking cessation isn't just about preventing cancer or heart attacks or diabetes or stroke one day. In fact, smoking has immediate effects on people's health. And remember, if you are listening on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button and on Spotify, click to follow. But first, let's hear the latest in healthcare news with Mitch Wall. And as always, welcome to Nursing Australia. Atagi continues to ponder boosters, rapid antigen tests get the green light, heart health on the back burner, and thousands of extra health practitioners join the surge workforce. This is Nursing Australia News. Hello, I'm Mitch Wall. The federal government's expert vaccination panel has not yet finalised their consideration of medical data on the need for COVID-19 booster shots. It's almost nine months after frontline health workers and other priority Australians first received their jabs, but there's concern their immunity may be waning. Countries including Israel, the US, Britain have begun booster programs to strengthen protection, but Federal Health Department boss Brendan Murphy says Atagi was still considering overseas evidence. This evidence is due to arrive with the Morrison government early next month. Australians will be able to start purchasing self-test kits for COVID-19 from pharmacies, convenience stores or online in a matter of weeks after the TGA announced it approved them for home use from November 1. But the use of the widespread tests, which could cost only about $20 a pop, may take more time. States and territories are still working out how a positive test should be reported once there's widespread use of self-testing. This is an important additional protection for Australians. Home testing to support Australians and to support the national plan. Nearly 350 heart attacks, strokes or heart-related deaths over the next five years could have been prevented if 27,000 health heart checks had not been missed or delayed due to COVID-19. This is according to new modelling released by the Heart Foundation. The data suggests Australians are likely to have missed out on early detection of heart attack or stroke during the pandemic, allowing their risk to go unmanaged and potentially leading to a rise in preventable heart events and deaths in the coming years. And the Australian Practitioner Regulation Industry, APRA, and the national boards have established a new pandemic response sub-register for 2021. Nearly 29,000 practitioners who recently stopped practising are now eligible to practise for up to 12 months. This surge workforce will make more practitioners available to help with the pandemic response, if they choose to do so. 
In the last week or so, we've clicked over 100,000 cases of COVID-19 in Australia. With a focus on rapid intervention and treatment of those who are COVID positive, health professionals probably have a fair idea of what to expect during the acute phase of the virus. Now, some new research from the University of Oxford is suggesting some 37% or roughly one in three of those recovering from COVID will experience at least one of the following symptoms for some months after their initial recovery from acute illness. Breathlessness, fatigue, pain, abdominal symptoms, and anxiety, depression, as has also been mentioned in their report. These symptoms are often coined as long COVID. Recently, I sat down with research professor Gisley Jenkins from the National Heart and Lung Institute in London to find out more about the concept of long COVID and what it means for our patients. So I just wanted to start by, do you mind defi- defining for me or defining for us, what is long COVID? No, so so there's no just, so basically, I think you know, for, for simp- simple purposes, long COVID is the persistence of symptoms uh, of COVID beyond the acute infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, the, there are two variables that are, are problematic. So it's the definition of long. So what, what's the time point? Mm. Uh, and I think somewhere between six weeks and three months is considered, uh, you know, that, that would be long COVID. Are we still in sort of infancy phase as far as COVID is concerned? I, I think we, I think we are certainly for the long term effects. I think we're pretty we're pretty clear now about the acute infection. We understand what causes the infection. We understand the sort of evolution over the first three weeks of the infection. We understand how to treat. So. Uh, obviously, in the in the initial phase, it's viral replication which causes symptoms. Mm. But often, by the time you get into you know, difficulty with uh, acute lung injury and the sort of hospitalisation severe end of the spectrum, that's infection uh, inflammation. So that's not directly infection. That's uh, the, the 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 immune response. We we call it hyperinflammation. And that's causing the damage, and then there's the slow recovery phase. Mm. And we we sort of so that we're pretty clear on, and we know that if you're going to have an antiviral, that needs to be given early. If you want to, if once you're in hospital, you need an anti-inflammatory, and there are, you know the dexamethasone and tocilizumab, which have both been shown to improve survival, are both anti-inflammatory. Mm. Uh, whereas when we were starting out uh, a little over a year ago, hard to believe. Um, we didn't know whether steroids would make things worse because mm. they would promote viral replication or whether they would make things better. So in that respect, in the acute illness, I think we're pretty clear as to what is going on and how to how to make things better. Uh, but you're right in the long-term consequences, long COVID, mm. if you will, very early days yet. You know, we know, for example, that the symptoms which linger most uh, are fatigue and breathlessness. Um, and we see that at about three months, uh, about 60% of people who've been discharged from hospital uh, are still feeling fatigue. Wow. Over 40% of people discharged from hospital are still feeling breathless. So what we don't know is the sort of 
how that reflects to non-hospitalized patients because mm. the denominator is harder to determine yeah uh, you only know how many people have the symptoms but a substantial number of people who never made it to hospital have got symptoms of breathlessness and fatigue so we know these are the commonest symptoms of of covid which persist you know fatigue and breathlessness fairly um you know common broad symptomology is is there um a particular presentation that is um unique to covid patients or or you know post covid not really no, I think so for the long COVID patients, the ones mm. that I've seen, the sort of it's uh, it's not unique. Um, uh, that, well, the unique feature is that they have COVID. Um, and <laughs> yes. then the the, uh, the 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 breathlessness gets slowly worse over time, which is slowly worse uh, over time. Yeah, then in, in long COVID. So it doesn't get so in the sort of uh, traditional hospitalized COVID, you, you get breathless very quickly. Mm. So you have infection, you have your fever, cough for about a week, and then you get quite you know, rapidly. Well, uh, breathless, it's, it's not a, um, it's not breathlessness at rest. It's so actually they can, they can be quite hypoxic. That's one of the sort of uh, the surprising things that we first noticed about COVID. There wasn't. Yeah persistent but you know there wasn't a lot of as much breathlessness as say there would be in a pneumonia so people would be quite hypoxic so clearly had a lot of lung damage but they wouldn't be gasping for breath at rest it was very much similar to what we call an interstitial process so if we look at patients who have interstitial lung disease chronic interstitial lung disease fine sitting on a sofa or watching telly you get them to walk up a flight of stairs and they can't do it because they're so breathless and exertion shortness of breath on exertion yeah so it was much more that than sort of just general breathlessness and what we see with some patients with long covid is that they get they get more breathless and exertion so again very similar to an interstitial lung process now in, in in some cases we find that that there is an inflammatory interstitial lung disease which responds to steroids but in many cases, we can't find at the moment what's the cause of this. And there are some interesting studies looking at um, uh, uh, using Xenon MRI, for example. So, so it's a so it's an MRI scan of the lungs mm. with using inhaled Xenon gas, which is inert as a uh, as a contrast agent. And what's cool about that is it's taken up into the blood vessels. And you can measure uh, yeah, how well that's taken up into the blood vessels and, and, and look at lung perfusion. And what we're finding is when everything else is normal in terms of the lung scan or the chest x-ray, yeah. that is quite wildly abnormal, showing that, that in patients who seem otherwise normal, they have impaired um, uh, diffusion in their lungs, which is the commonest abnormality uh, following COVID infection. And that's work being done by uh, Professor Gleason at Oxford and uh, Professor Jim Wilde in, in Sheffield. And it's uh, and, and we're looking at that because what it suggests is that the the inflammation caused by the COVID damages the alveolar capillary barrier. Mm. 
uh, and which is so I, I, I don't know if your your, your audience understands uh, the sort of pathophysiology of the of the distal lung parenchyma but the alveolar subunit is tiny um, mm -hmm. and the, the gap from the alveolus to the capillary is two microns which is one thousandth the you know the thickness of a shaft of hair yeah and that's easily damaged and so that's what we're seeing we're seeing so you can't it's not it's not widespread enough to cause obvious damage on a on a on a chest x-ray or a ct scan mm. but it's sufficiently damaged to prevent you know oxygen getting across and that will make people feel breathless what what do you foresee i mean uh... I guess if you were to predict in the the medium short or medium to long term, what do you think would be the the impacts um, both on on the healthcare space, but uh, you know, I mean broader, like how how big do you think this will become in the UK? Uh, well, in, in in the world, I think it's going to be a big world. problem. I mean, two hundred million people have been infected with COVID. I mean, that's a lot yeah. of people. And if we take a conservative estimate, um, uh, you know, that say 25% of those people will get, will have long-term breathlessness. That's a lot of people. I mean, I mean, we, 20, we're, we're 25%. That's a, yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's hard to be precise. I mean, mm -hmm. we can, it's easier to look at hospitalization. We can, if we take ballpark figures, so one in eight people with COVID, which is, I mean, not, I mean, this is what people, I think, struggle to fully grasp. One in eight people with COVID ends up in hospital. That's an enormous number. I mean, you just think about a block of flats or something. You know, if that whole block of flats gets COVID, that's your local hospital full, essentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, that. that I mean, that's the scale of the problem we're dealing with. Yeah. And then 40% of people hospitalized are breathless three months later. So that's a, you know, this, so the scale of this problem is huge. Wow. Um, what we're fond of saying in, in, sort of in medicine is that a, you know, a small percentage of a very large number is a very large number. Uh, but a large percentage of a very large number is an enormous number mm. and that's that's the problem uh, and the, what makes covid such uh, a uniquely dangerous virus is that it's, it's our rate if left without any control is so high so it's very easily transmissible mm. but it has substantial healthcare consequences now it's possible uh you know that with time i think this is likely the modeling suggests that with time that covid will be no worse than the common cold uh but that will require 10 years how how do you, how do you think um vaccine hesitancy could be quelled or how how do how do you think that should be approached i guess uh, you know this is not my this is straying way beyond my area of expertise i think i, I think it's vaccine hesitancy is understandable mm -hmm. Uh, and so I don't think having an autocratic, you know, paternalistic approach is is the right approach. I think it why not? Probably... <laughs> because I think that it's going to it often just reinforces uh, the hesitancy. Because actually, the reason people are 
hesitant, I suspect, by and large, is because they don't trust the people who are giving them the message. So sort of doubling down on you know, that is probably uh, not appropriate. I think there are you know, policy inducements which might be possible. Uh, we'll see how that works. The UK is trying to encourage uh, vaccines in younger people by offering them uh, some financial inducements. We'll see if that works. And of yeah. course, you know, the, the people who have the most to lose and the highest to gain are the, the younger people. So because their, their risk of severe illness with COVID is small, uh, whereas their risk of, so relative, you know, there may be more equipoise in the younger population. Um, and, you know, it's also about reminding people that the vaccine isn't just about helping them, it's about helping their family, their elderly relatives. There's all sorts of, I mean, it's, it's a very complex issue, which uh, again, I don't, I don't have any real expertise in so um but there are ways around it and i think i think trying to be positive about the vaccine is is probably a a good way because it is the way out for the whole world so if you would like to discover more on professor jenkins research into interstitial lung disease post-covid or maybe read up a little bit more on the long-term impacts of covid on the lungs there are some links in the show notes of this episode that are worthwhile checking out If you're a practice nurse, Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander primary healthcare worker or a DVA contracted community nurse, APNA in conjunction with the Department of Veterans Affairs are offering free education to help deliver the best possible care to patients enrolled in the Coordinated Veterans Care Program. If you have patients enrolled in CVC, you can now access these fully funded education modules specifically on chronic disease management and care planning. Nurses are the leaders of chronic disease management in primary care. By completing this education, you'll be able to coordinate an effective team approach and help support veterans with self-management and goals of care. To enrol in the program, head to www.apna.asn.au and click on the Your Profession tab to find out more. So the APNA Student Nurse Placement Program shines a light on primary healthcare for student nurses and helps really to future-proof the primary healthcare nursing workforce. APNA has been working with a variety of universities and tertiary institutions to provide really high-quality nursing placements for both undergrad and postgrad students in dynamic settings, including general practice, aged care, schools, community health, and other primary healthcare settings. The list goes on and on. This program is really exciting. It offers students, but also nurses who are working in that field, with a really enriching learning experience. And so I thought this episode of Nursing Australia, we'd step inside and take our listeners inside the world of the Student Nurse Placement Program, find out how it came about and hear from those who have experienced it. APNA decided to create the Student Nurse Placement Program to meet the need of the workforce shortage that we're experiencing, um, to meet the need of the universities who often struggle to find enough placements for their students and to promote the role of the primary healthcare nursing as a very viable option and career choice for nurses. When I get the allocation for a primary healthcare service for my placements, I was a bit confused because I thought it's not going to be that busy, I won't be learning that much. When I came here, I, I felt it's completely different what I thought 
and I'm experiencing so many different things happening here, so it, I'm loving that. So I think this is a really good opportunity for the students to actually experience what it's like working in general practice. I'm very passionate about general practice and I think it's a great career choice, again, for nursing students that normally wouldn't have that opportunity of seeing what our skills are like. When a student nurse goes to a primary healthcare setting, it's actually a really great opportunity for them to have a relationship with that practice or with that primary healthcare setting. One or one mentoring is really beneficial for a student because we have an instructor beside us throughout the shift. So we get feedback from for each and every little thing we do and that is really helpful for us to improve our knowledge and improve our practice. One-on-one -on -one mentoring is a really good opportunity for the nursing students to be able to consolidate, ask questions, be confident in what they want to learn, to try and get them ready for what you know life is like in general practice because it's not the same as hospital, it's not that acute at times. I feel like primary healthcare is really beneficial to start the career because we get a lot of opportunities and we get a lot of time to learn things in slowly. Initially the student will start off very shy, you know, quite sort of standoffish, they'll stand back and then give them a little bit of a, you know, leeway, a little bit of independence and you see how they just progress from somebody who initially was first gosh, I can't do this, um, to somebody that just confidently gets there um, and really just, you know, does an amazing job. So seeing those and seeing them smile when they know they've achieved that um, is really rewarding. It's not uncommon for student nurses to be actually offered a job um, back at the, at the practice or back at the facility where they've been working on their clinical experience. So, I mean, it provides that really um, wonderful opportunity for them to almost try a staff member before they employ one. Being here, doing placements was one of the greatest uh, thing that happened in my life because they offered me the job at the end of my bachelor program. And it's about creating a pipeline of young nurses coming through the university system to be able to perhaps choose a career in primary healthcare nursing when they get to the end of their degree. 45% of nurses reported feeling regularly or sometimes isolated, alone or lacking support from other nurses in our 2019 workforce survey. So we've been cooking up your newest member benefit, the APNA Online Community. A space for members to seek support, advance their knowledge and share their own knowledge. The online community is not only a forum, but also a member directory, a news hub, an events calendar and a video library all in one spot. Head to www.apna.asn.au to log in and start using your new member benefit today. This podcast is brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association and is only made possible by our members. Join today. Google APNA membership. Punching darts, having a cig, ciggies, durries, having a smoke, smoko, smoking, whatever you want to call it, it's very much still a thing. And giving brief advice to patients can really snowball into positive, tangible outcomes to smokers out there and assisting them to quit. I caught up with Dr. Sarah White from Quit Victoria for some tips on how health professionals can tackle these sometimes challenging patient interactions and how we can better promote smoking cessation. 
So smoking cessation seems to have fallen off the health promotion wagon in recent years. And I want to know why is it vital that health promotion and messaging around smoking cessation continues? Well, it's a pretty simple answer for that one because smoking is the leading cause of preventable death and disease. It is the single leading cause. And I think what we fail to appreciate sometimes as health professionals too is that smoking um, cessation isn't just about preventing cancer or heart attacks or diabetes or stroke one day. In fact, smoking has immediate effects on people's health. So if you have someone going in for surgery and they're smoking, they're going to have an increased risk of surgical site infection. They'll have an increased risk of complications from anesthesia. They'll have reduced pain management. They're more likely to stay in hospital for longer, and we all hate length of stay issues, and they're more likely to be readmitted. So that's just a couple of the of the reasons why um, we actually really need to keep bringing smoking cessation to the top of the of, of what we do as as health professionals. And in terms of um, evidence-based approaches or techniques or strategies for nurses that are out there in the community or are working in general practice, corrections, aged care, variety of settings, I guess, are there any, I guess, broad techniques or, or particular approaches that, that you would suggest are, are the best that, that research and evidence tells us these are the most effective ways of... Yeah, absolutely. So the most effective thing is actually a pretty fast, simple and effective intervention called brief advice. So simply saying to someone, do you smoke? And then advising them the bit that they should stop and why and the best way to stop smoking and then helping them access treatments is actually really effective. And in and of itself, it will cause about 2% of the people to stop smoking. That doesn't sound like a lot, but imagine if every practice nurse around Australia was giving this brief advice. So the way the conversation goes is simply this, do you smoke? Okay, so I have to tell you that the it would be a really great idea to stop smoking because of your broken leg or your healing wound or you're having surgery or whatever. And the best way to try and do that is to combine something like quitline counselling with appropriate um, nicotine replacement patches or something like that. Can I help you do that right now? That's it. Even if people don't accept the offer of a referral for quitline or they don't want to use nicotine replacement therapy in any way, there will be a certain number of those people who go on to try and quit cold turkey and quit successfully. Um, in doing some research for this, I, I'd ask some general practice nurses what their approaches are. And th there was a fair amount of feedback that it, it sort of the consensus is it has fallen off the bandwagon. But an interesting point, which I'm curious for your insights on, is when you're in a situation, say you've got someone with complex chronic health conditions, um, complex psychosocial uh, issues and the key is say we have a chronic wound and, and while we know that you know it, it affects wound healing but it's really uh, compliance is the key getting them back to the clinic and yeah. so I guess the feedback that I got was well sometimes it's best to not engage the the smoking side because I'm worried that I'll lose their engagement and everything else will fall by the wayside so how would you suggest yeah, we approach that that's a really great question and it, it's something we've heard um, plenty of times before and in fact we hear a lot when we work with people who are working in mental health settings okay. you know yeah. we use smoking to engage our clients if we start talking about them we might and you know really um, break that rapport but what the evidence does show us is that most people who smoke want to stop 
So smoking costs a lot of money. Even if people aren't worried about their health risks in the now and into the future, they sure as heck know about the wealth risks. So 80% of people want to stop smoking. Half of all people who smoke try every year to stop smoking. There was a really nice study done um, in the US and it basically compared people, this was in hospitals, people who were asked about smoking versus people who weren't. And the people who were asked about smoking even if they had no intention of quitting, rated their care as being comprehensive and supportive. So where our contention really is that there are very, very few people who will be put off by a non-judgmental, supportive advice and offer to help. And that's why that offer to help and to actually do something is so important as part of brief advice. Mm-hmm. And look, I get practice nurses are asked to do a heck of a lot This is a really simple little conversation that you can have while you're dressing a wound or checking blood pressure or doing some of those things where you're building that rapport, just keeping it a really nice, non-judgmental, supportive, hey, I can help you with that because most people actually do want help to try and quit. And for those that um, require additional resources, not only for for patients, patient information, et cetera, and then secondary to that, perhaps um, CPD, professional development, resources for nurses do you have any that you can suggest currently that are timely and 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 up to date yeah so we've got quite a few resources on the quit website quit.org.au and people can go on there and do online training get a little certificate at the end uh, or just read up some of the resources order resources for their patients but you know i'd really suggest people just have a go at using the ask advise help and it's uh, it really is a pretty fast and simple and effective way to to start a conversation up. Yeah, that's really effective sage advice. Thank you so much. Actually, I have to ask this one, um, if you don't mind. Um, as you know, from o- October, laws around vaping products are changing. Right now, nicotine products are illegal. Um, however, that won't be the case. It'll be available with a doctor's prescription. Where are vaping products best placed or best used in the smoking cessation timeline, if you will? Sure. So nicotine vaping products are best used as a second-line treatment approach and certainly Mm. after an approach of either varenicline or nicotine replacement therapy and ideally a combination, so patches plus an intermittent form, gum, lozenge, that sort of thing. Um, what we the challenge with nicotine vaping products is the evidence is still pretty limited on their effectiveness. Yeah. Most importantly, though, there are no TGA approved products. So we actually don't have any data around quality, safety, and efficacy. But we do know there's still an addiction potential with nicotine vaping products. So they can help some people. If some people have, mm. have tried everything else and they've failed, um, then probably nicotine vaping products can help when used in combination with uh, behavioural intervention like Quitline, Mm. but really reserved as a second-line treatment approach. Be sure to have a look in the show notes for links to handy health professional resources and also head to www.quit.org.au for more information. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. 
So coming up soon on the podcast, Nursing Australia presents Andrew Denton, a very special episode as we had the opportunity to sit down with him to discuss voluntary assisted dying and its impact on nurses and health professionals more broadly. Please keep your eyes out for that. It is coming in the coming weeks. If you are listening to Nursing Australia right now on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button for the latest updates. And if you are a Spotify listener, click to follow. I'm Matt St. Ledger. Thank you so much for joining us once again on Nursing Australia. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. For more information, please visit us at www.apna.asn.au. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.